Welcome to The Twelfth Story, a book discussion podcast produced by Cincinnati's Mercantile Library, where readers gather to engage, connect, debate, and discuss. The Mercantile Library is 180 years old and is the literary center of Cincinnati. Throughout the year, the Mercantile Library hosts authors and speakers, book discussion groups, and other civic events. We are a working library with more than 75,000 books available to members. We're located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati and online at www.mercantillibrary.com. We always welcome new members and guests. Joining us today in the lecture hall on the 12th story of the Mercantile Building are Deborah Janacchio, owner and operator of Opio, a great new restaurant and pie shop in Walnut Hills, and a member of the board of the Mercantile Library. Hi, Deborah. Hi. And Meg Hall, attorney at Conan and Patton, and she has also served on the committee of the Niehoff Lecture, which is coming up soon. Check the Mercantile's website. Hi, Meg. Hello. And I'm Brendan Call. I work at Kroger, and I'm also a board member of the Mercantile Library. Today, we're doing something a little different. If you're a regular listener, we're going with a theme instead of just one book. Uh, we're going to be talking about books that are set in Italy or about Italy or featuring Italian food and culture, you name it. I think, really, we were just longing for a trip ourselves to Italy, and we thought we'd get together and talk a little bit about uh, uh, books that remind us of uh, that wonderful country. So if you're visit interested in visiting Italy, or if you've recently returned, or you just want to dream about that wonderful place, this episode is for you. So let me start. Uh, before we get into the books, uh, tell me what your, your history with with Italy is. And uh, Meg, I'm going to go to you. Okay. Um, I studied abroad in Florence, Italy in 2005. I, my mother is 100% Italian, first-generation American. Both of her parents were born in Italy. And I've always had an interest and passion in Italian arts and Italian culture and especially Italian food. And then since then, I, ha I am married to a chef who um, focused for four years in Italian cuisine at Vivite and Found Square here in Delicious. Cincinnati, Ohio. And since then, I think I've just continued my love. We've taken several trips to Italy and, and continuing our love with Italian culture. That's phenomenal. Deborah, you've been many times. We have uh, been more than a few times. It's need to get back. Um, I'm married to a man who's an Italian surname. Um, and he's good at being Italian. His family <laughs> came here in 1847. That could be a whole podcast. Today, yeah. So. Um, and um, his grandfather was Italian consul in Cincinnati um, back in the 1920s and 30s, which was sort of a kind of an honorarium, but it was kind of a fun. It was a practical thing as immigrants came to the United States and they needed information on how things worked or a job or a connection. They would come to him and he'd help them. Um, it was more of a, it was an honorarium, but it was also a cultural uh, way of assimilating Italians into a, a city. In the 20s? I, you know, I say the 20s, it might, it probably was before that, probably in the early 1900s. Height of the immigration. Yeah, height of immigration. Um, so he spoke Italian in the household, but his father did not speak Italian. It was sort of that generation skipping where you didn't, you wanted to be all things American. So um, my husband speaks a little Italian. Favorite place in the country that you've been? In Italy? Yep. Um, 
we've been mostly in the north. I think one of my favorite cities is Verona and then Vicenza, which is a smaller city between Verona and uh, Venice. It's just, it's beautiful. Very nice, very nice. Uh, I'm half Italian uh, myself. My uh, mother's side of the family is 100% Italian. Her father, uh, his side of the family is from Naples, and her mother's side of the family was from Sicily, um, which counts, and uh, although it's different, and um, have been just one time, uh, but had a, a wonderful trip where we saw the countryside outside of Orvieto and, and Florence and, and Rome, so anxious to go back someday soon, and maybe this podcast recording today will inspire me to figure out how to plan a trip sometime in the future, so... I think what we'll do is maybe start with some um, what would be more nonfiction books about Italy. And if there um, are books that you've read, that would be great for listeners who are wanting to learn more or have been wanting to experience the, the world of Italy that it's more, more on the factual side of things, the nonfiction side of things. What would you recommend to them? Let me start. Go ahead, Meg. Sure. Um, one that's near and dear to my heart because I read it right before I went my first time to Italy when I went to study there in college was uh, is Under the Tuscan Sun by Frances Mays. It's it's for obviously it's a movie now. For those of you who have seen the movie, it is nothing really like the movie, with the exception of this woman who moves uh, from the United States to try to renovate this house in Italy. But what inspired me about the book, because from looking in, it doesn't seem that interesting. Okay, so you read about a woman who moves to Italy and wants to renovate this old house, is her um, insight into the culture and especially into the food. Uh, before then, I had, like I said, I had not been to Italy, and it wasn't until I got there and I tried some of the food and I really understood what she was what she was getting at. That it is very product focused. Um, and that it is this love for food and this appreciation for food. Um, and it was, you know, I, I just always am going to enjoy that book and bring back fond memories. Is it a memoir? It is a memoir. I didn't know that. I mm -hmm. think I thought that was a... I, I admit to only <coughs> knowing that it was a movie. And <laughs> it was a movie that generally there weren't... I mean, not to sound sexist, but there's probably generally not a whole lot of men in the audience of a showing of Under the Tuscan Sun. Sure. <laughs> so I think I assumed it was... Truth. Yes, um, and just, you know, from... What a, a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> from a book perspective. Um, it, obviously, yes, in the movie, I would consider it a chick flick and where she goes over there <laughs> Thank after you. That's a bad... I was going to say it, but I, it's inappropriate <laughs> for me to say it. So. After a bad divorce and tries to rediscover herself, th the book is not like that. She has already been through the divorce. Um, she is a different part in her life and is very right. much focused about uh, the Italian culture and not so much about her, her love life. So, Have um, you read it? I Deborah? did. I did. Did you like it? I loved it. I did. I was terribly envious of, of her. I mean, it, it, it's not. I mean, she has a great. She has a good insight into um, the culture. But what was impressive too was how she got this house rebuilt. How she sort of marshaled um, craftsmen and tradesmen and, and people to get the work done, which is not easy in your native tongue in your native land. But it's many more times difficult in Italy because, as she will explain in any books you read on Italy, th their, their laws and their regulations at, are very arcane and they're larded with superstition and secrecy <laughs> and... Um, relationships. Relationships and it's, 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 and it's all, you're, you know, they're not gonna explain to you how it works. You're only gonna find out how it works when you do it wrong. 
Um, so the fact that she got this done under those circumstances was pretty impressive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is uh, all right. So book is obviously better than the movie. Yes. <laughs> this is no question. <laughs> no question. <laughs> no question. Okay. Book's better than the movie. All right. We'll keep going around. Deborah, what what do you have? Uh, that you enjoyed. What's the first book? If somebody says I'm going to Italy for the first time. Oh, if you're going to Italy for the first time, the a book. Uh, well, the book I really like. It's called Italian Neighbors. Um, it's by Tim Park Parks. Um, I'm not sure. It's it. It gives you insight into what it's like to live in Italy. Uh, Tim Parks is English. He's married to an Italian woman, and they're living in Italy. And they settle in sort of the outskirts of Verona, and. Um, He's such a good writer that he can explain sort of the the eccentricities and the quirks of Italian culture and not sound condescending. There's a combination of admiration and awe and just a little bit, <laughs> you know, how do they do it? I mean, how does the country operate with these sorts of considerations? I mean, he and he goes through chapter by chapter various aspects of the Italian culture, like. Uh, he'll talk about gardening and how they're c- obsessed with the English lawn and how it has to be watered and cut three times a week. And for some reason, they look to the English when it comes to what a lawn should look like. Um, their obsession with documentation. Um, every, there has to be a report on everything. You have to have the document. I remember one time we were in Italy in Milan and our car was broken into almost immediately. We parked it, we walked 30 feet and we heard the alarm going off. <laughs> and we went, we started to turn around and go back and we thought, and then the alarm went off. We said, oh, must have been just somebody else's car. Well, of course our car had been broken into. <laughs> and uh, when we came back to the car and the windows are broken out and you know the trunk's rifled through and our stuff is gone, um, we drive to our hotel with the broken out windows in the rain and we get to the hotel and the ho- hotel manager says, "Are you? did you file a police report? No. Well, you have to file a police report. I said, <laughs> well, we're leaving tomorrow and are they going to find our stuff? No. How could well, you not file do we need <laughs> it for insurance? No. Well, why do we need to file a report? Because you have to file a report. <laughs> And there's an office at the Milan airport that is set up just for filing reports of cars that have been broken into. Really? Because you've got to file the report. And it's kind of charming once you understand that's something that's important. They do keep amazing records. I mean, if you look on, um, (coughs) I mean, if if I've spent a few hours on that Ancestry.com website, my wife is listening and saying more than a few hours right now, but I've spent some time on that website, and the Italian collection is remarkable. I mean, they have birth certificates and documentation, death certificates, baptism certificates, going back years and centuries, and it's it's remarkable because the United States doesn't have nearly as much of that online as they do. It's kind mm-hmm. of, it's interesting that that's a cultural form. I will say something, too. Uh, recently, I've Someone at my office, um, one of the partners, Mark Zumo, is getting his Italian citizenship and actually d- does have it. And it, it perked my interest in seeing if his grandfather was Italian. Well, could we? Um, could my mother, whose parents were born in Italy? And my, my uncle just went over there and was able to obtain birth certificates and 
um, information about uh, my ancestors in a pretty readily manner than he he could uh, he could say even here. Right. Um, and they could find their birth certificates, give them copies, you know, within ten minutes from the little towns that they both were from. Which you can't do here at all. Which it seems uh, unbelievable a little bit. I was very surprised, but it that's going back to this whole documentation. They. They seem to have a good system. so <laughs> Which is remarkable because the country, I mean, as you read about in any of these books, the country hasn't been a country for all that very long. Right. Um, so the so I'll, I'll offer one. The first one I would recommend is, is relatively new. It was out late, um, uh, er, I guess early 14, and it's called, it's just called The Italians, and it's by John Hooper, who is in... Um, another Englishman who, who has written this book, and he divides it up very similarly to what you were talking about, Deborah, into chapters about food, about the history, about the countryside, about myths and legends, about family, of course, about the mafia. Uh, it, it's just written really well, and he's, a, he's, a, um, he's got a, a nice English wit to him in the way he writes. It, it pours through on the pages, and it's almost a few of the paragraphs you want to read out loud, maybe in an English accent, because they just it's just very extremely well delivered. So it's kind of a, a fun book. It's a great primer. It's not a hard read. Mm -hmm. um, it's an easy read to kind of pick up on the overall culture. But he does spend a lot of time talking about Italy pre-1860 and Italy pre- or post-1860, which is when, obviously, when the country was basically unified into one country. Obviously, before that, it was kind of a well, we're not going to do it Italian-Roman history here, but it was a series of empires and, and so on, and so it wasn't really the country of Italy until 1860 when Garibaldi stormed through the country and put it back together again. And so um, he gets into, um, gets into some of that and explains why it's important when you understand the culture, especially whether you're in the north or whether you're in the south. Um, that's, that's pretty critical to understanding the country. So what else? What else do you have? I, everyone's, you can't see this if you're, if, you're, if you're listening in, but everyone's got stacks of books in front of them. Stacks and stacks of books. Well, one other part that Tim Parks <laughs> talks about was their, their love of cars. And um, one, where they, they finally get this apartment, and um, he's shown down to the lower level where they have a joint garage that they're allowed to use, and it's spotless, it's immaculate, it's tile-lined, there's no oil stains, there's hardly a tire mark on it, not anything like American garages. And he wants to know which is the space that he can use. And um, the man, the neighbor who's showing him his spot with his beautiful sports car that he takes out probably four times a year, explains that the prior owner is only recently deceased, and so as a matter of respect, he really needs to just kind of wait. And over the spot where his car would otherwise park is a crucifix. And oh. <laughs> there has to be some decent interval that elapses before he can park his car oh my in that spot. <laughs> <laughs> this is in Parks' book. In Parks' book, yeah. Wow. But going back, another book I read, I think after a one or two trips to Florence. It's called The City of Florence. Uh, it's, and I love Florence. Um, asking me my favorite city is like my favorite child. I shouldn't have said, picked <laughs> one. It's kind of a, a slog. It's by R.W.B. Lewis, and it's a historical thing about, um, and it's about Florence, and it's very deep. It's a lot about William Dean Howells and Henry James and all these Americans in Florence. The part I remembered and I really liked was that Frank Duvenek spent some time in Florence 
and um, he fell in love with Elizabeth Boot. I guess that's how it's pronounced. Um, he'd fallen, he'd met her before, but her father and she lived in Florence in sort of a suburb called Bella's Guardo, which overlooks the city. And um, he tried to court her. Her father didn't approve of him because he was this crude Midwestern, loud American, loud Midwestern artist. Um, he eventually did win over her father. Um, and then they got married, I think, in 1886. And she died in 1888. So they had sort of this long courtship and a marriage. And she had a marriage. baby, and then she died very shortly after the marriage. But there's this beautiful um, picture, a, a painting that Duvenek did of their house in Florence called Via Castellani, which huh. is in Bella's Guardo. And we happened to stay at a hotel, which I think is next to this Villa Castellani. It's called the Torre de Bella's Guardo. Wow. So if you ever go to Florence and are looking for like a one night or two night cost, be damned, <laughs> you should stay at the, the Torre de Bella's Guardo. It is. You will never forget the time you wow. spent. It overlooks the city. It's got a pool. Uh, you can walk down through an olive grove through this hidden gate and come out into the Via Romana, which is one of the city gates. And I mean, you're right off the throbbing heart of the city. And it's just, it's like something out of I see Meg. Storybook. I see Meg nodding, and I, I know, because Meg and I have known each other a long time, one of, the, one of the most beautifully written emails that I've ever received was from Meg right before we took our trip, and it was about her love for Florence. So jump in here and talk about your, your I mean, this is this is your favorite city. <laughs> no, it is. I, I, I love Florence as well. Um, obviously, I, I studied there, like I said, for a year and fell in love with the city. I bef What drew me to Florence is, is the art and the fact that the Renaissance was there, and I, I just love learning about it in school. Um, and so there was no question when I was decided that I wanted to go there. And uh, I, can't, I can't even say enough, the food, um, the people you meet, you know, uh, I think one of my favorite things to do in Florence and mo in a lot of European cities is just to get lost in it and, and just walk around it and get to know the city. And um, Piazza Michelangelo, which I believe is near where you're talking, if you go up and there's the, the David, one of the fake Davids in, in the square there, um, it's near just, I walked there one night and I, it overlooks the entire city and it's just beautiful. I, I can't say enough about, I think, the culture of it. Uh, I would recommend it. I'm not. I, I have a problem saying it's my favorite city as well, but I think I, I think I would always default to if I ever go to Italy, I always have to go to Florence. Like touch base in Florence, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So uh, the book that Meg and I both put on our list. This is a good segue into that. The mm -hmm. bo book Meg and I both put on our list of books that we wanted to talk about today was Brunelleschi's Dome. You you recommended this to me very early on. Read it much earlier than I did, and then someone else who I work with recommended it to me. So talk a little bit about that book and then other books by Ross King because I think we're both fans of his work. Yes, and I, I think everyone here has read has read this book. Um, this is a, it's a wonderful, it's not a very thick book. It's short. Um, and it's short and there is a lot in it um, when you get through this book by Ross King. I like the way that Ross King writes. I will say my only thing with this book, and I think it was something that we all talked about, is that I do not have any uh, background in architecture or any um, 
really knowledge, to tell you the truth. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of ignorant in the subject. And so when I read this, it was a lot to take on at some parts when I was trying to really understand what he was telling about how they, and th this shows kind of the genius of making this dome or figuring out this dome, is trying to understand what, what in fact, they were doing. Um, right, and, right. and they were creating, when they talk about creating the different levels um, and how that was important. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's mind-boggling and... and for those who've been to Florence, I mean, it's the one thing you can see. You look up and you can see the Duomo. You can never get lost in Florence because you just look up and you find the Duomo. Um, and so the fact that they were able to build this so so long ago and during times of war, it, it's just, it's great. I think Ross King is a great writer. I will say, give a shout out to Michelangelo and the Pope Ceiling, which I believe he did that book a couple years later um, after Brunelleschi's Dome. And it's about uh, Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel. I, I will say I loved that book. I, I probably had more of appreciation for that book, like I said, because I had more of an um, appreciation, more of a love for Renaissance artwork as opposed to the architecture. But I think I think they're definitely worth a read, especially if you have any interest in architecture. Yeah, I think this book was, I mean, I, I agree. I really like this book. Um, you gave it to me to learn, or recommended it to me to learn about Florence and to learn about the Duomo because we would obviously you can't go to Florence. It's the it, you see it from everywhere you are. It's the most in, it's an inspiring building. If you go up in the Duomo, it's the most one of the most gorgeous views that you can have. Um, the other person who recommended it to me, I th I think one of the reasons he liked it was because it's a it in a sense has some business applications as well to it which is about sticking to a vision. I mean, this is a building that took them hundreds of, more than a hundred years to build. And that, you know, when you took over as the lead engineer, you had to swear this oath to the original vision of the building. And the other kind of theme in it is, is that when they were, when they had designed it, they didn't quite know how to build it. The technology and the um, know-how to how to actually build the building that they had drawn didn't exist. So they, did it as they went, and they learned it as they went, which is remarkable. So there's some, you know, business applications there. But I completely agree with you. I was, I mean, I would read paragraphs over and over again, say, now wait, what do they do with the logs, and how do they do this? Which was c contrast, by the way, to one of my, this is a side note, but a, a favorite book I have about engineering and architecture, which is David McCullough's book about building the Brooklyn Bridge. He's not an engineer either, neither is Ross King, but he, I felt like, I mean, I could go build the Brooklyn Bridge today if I had to, because he did such a good job <laughs> explaining how to do it, and it, for like a layman. Um, this was a little bit, uh, he, 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 I don't know, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't quite always pick up on what he was doing, so I'd love to read the Michelangelo mm -hmm. book. He's also written a book about um, the Impressionist movement in Paris, which I know is not the country we're talking, <laughs> the, or the, the locale we're talking about today, but um, Ross King, Brunelleschi's Dome, great author, uh, a great book as well. What else on your list, Deborah? Any other um, in terms of nonfiction, um, I remembered at the last minute because there was a great line in it that my husband and I use not infrequently. It's called The Last Italian, uh, and the subtitle is A Portrait of a People. It's by William Murray, who was the fiction editor at The New Yorker for years. And uh, then he was um, based in Rome for a period of time. He's actually born in Italy. His mother's Italian. Um, he spent the first his six years, eight years of his childhood in Italy. And then they relocated to the United States. And then he's gone back to Italy a lot. And 
the last Italian is, is really a series of, each chapter has to do with various people or politicians, again, other aspects of Italian life, but it's, it's um, exemplified by an individual or, or an event. And, um, and he just has this fabulous arch rye. Um, obviously, he has a deep affection for the country, but he also has a clear understanding of, of the um, difficulties of ruling of, or organizing and running that kind of a country. But the, the part that I recalled was he was talking about horse racing. Um, and the, the Italians love horse racing, but he talks about the Derby, which is, you know, obviously Derby is an English place, and the, Eng the Derby is an English horse race. It's three-year-olds over a specified course of um, uh, distance. But he was talking about how the English write all the rules for horse racing. But he said, of course, you know, the English were placing bets on horse races in the Colosseum and the Circus Maximus while the English were still living in caves and painting themselves <laughs> blue. <laughs> so he's sort of... And then he talks about this race where this Italian butcher owned this horse and he unlikely won the race, but they couldn't help but point out that he was an English-trained horse. Um, but they said no one had the, the bad grace to point that out too, um, too publicly. But, um, you know, it's just one of the ironies that, you know, the English dictate the rules about horse racing, but it's the Italians who have been doing it for centuries longer That's, than I didn't the English. I did, not, I didn't know that. That's terrific. All right, so we're just, so if you're listening and you're, you're in your car or doing whatever you're doing, going for a jog, we're, we'll have all of these up on the... Um, somewhere on the uh, iTunes site, so we'll list the books, and um, if you have any questions, you can obviously call the Mercantile Library, and we'll tell you about what books were in the podcast. Um, all right, so we've, we've, we've kind of walked out on history and architecture and uh, the country. Uh, let's talk about food for a second, because I see that some of us have cookbooks or food books in front of us. Meg, you mentioned that you're married to a chef. Uh, who knows well how to cook some Italian food. Uh, so tell us what, uh, what's a staple in your kitchen. Um, I, the I'll talk about wine real quick first. I, I have this book. We have this book. My husband actually bought it, Vino Italiano. Um, and it talks about, it's all about Italian wine. And it's by Joe Bastianich and David Lynch. Joe Bastianich, who's Lydia Bastianich's son. He's also well-known as own right. He's Mario Batali's pretty much partner up in New York with all, all their restaurants now outside of New York. But this is, and it's a, you can't see it obviously, but it is a thicker book. Um, but we take this to Italy whenever we go and we write notes in it. And this is a great book if you are traveling throughout Italy because what you'll realize when you get to Italy is how region focused Italy really is. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to Italy and all right. the wines are like X and all the food is like X. It's very dictated by the region. And so this book breaks it down by regions. Or if you just have a passion for Italian wine um, and want to learn more about it, it's a great book to pick up. But I really, I highly recommend it. You can go by sections. Um, it has so much knowledge in there. And if you're just trying to learn about wine or um, know a lot about wine and you're just wanting to focus more on Italian wine, it's a great book. Another thing, it has it has recipes in it uh, that were provided by Mario Batali and Lydia Bassianich. And so 
um, it's it's a great book. I would really recommend it. It's, it's the one thing that I take to Italy, have to take to Italy with it, me. It, it looks well well you used. <laughs> you, can, you can't see this, but it looks like it has been gone through many, many times. <laughs> There's no wine stains. <laughs> <laughs> there should be. Probably. And then you have another one. Oh, and then, yes, Franny's, which um, is a place in Brooklyn. Um, one thing I think that Americans or you struggle with when you come back from Italy is trying to get the taste of the food that you had back in Italy. And uh, everywhere you go, it's, it's not the same. And um, I think there has been a shift in our culture with food and, you know, talking even 10, 15 years ago, I think it was a very much focused on Italian-American food. And I don't know, I think within the last 10 years, you can almost say that there's been this focus about um, actually bringing Italian food over. Um, Mario Batali, I uh, did this hugely in New York, um, but bringing the actual concept of not just having lasagna or meatballs and so forth, um, but really exploring what Italian food is. And Franny's is, uh, is a restaurant in Brooklyn owned by Francine Stevens and Andrew fine Feinberg, and they're a couple, and they went over to Italy and just fell in love with the food and wanted to open up in a, a restaurant. Uh, they're well known for their pizza. My husband and I went there um, this past time we were in Brooklyn, and it, it you do. You sit down and you taste the pizza, and it does bring you back to Naples and, and some of the food. And they're very focused on ingredients, and they're very product-focused about where they source the ingredients from. I think as far as a cookbook-wise, I am not a cook. And <laughs> I have been trying, though, because my husband uh, has now is now working at Blackberry Farm in Tennessee, so I'm having to fend for myself more. Um, and I, I've been able, from someone who is a novice at being at cooking for themselves, taking these recipes and really just having good product and you can make stuff for yourself. The pizza recipes are actually really great in it and she gives some really great shortcuts and it works. So if you're in Brooklyn, go to Franny's and pick up the book because I think it's it's definitely worth the money. That's great. I've been did to Franny's. It's it's terrific. You have? Yeah. Did, I think they moved recently. They did, yeah. yes. Yeah. Did you bring food book? Uh, I did. I brought, well, you know, sort of the, I mean, Marcella Hazan, which is sort of she's classic she's the classic i mean it's that also this book I this mean, is I wish called the this. one i brought was I, more classic I'm we're Italian take a picture cooking. of this too and we'll we'll tweet it but this is a well well utilized this book is, here too. this is pretty it's kind of yeah it's kind of well well used um she's she's the she's the lady i mean and um she's probably got i don't know six or seven cookbooks um she's from venice she and her husband victor um, she did the recipes. I think Victor did a lot of the writing. Her writing is very straightforward. Um, she's got a teeny, have you ever seen a picture of her kitchen? It's teeny tiny. It could fit, I mean, it's like a kitchen you might see on a boat. It's, it is not, it's not big. And how she turns out the food that she turns out. And it's, it has to do with, like Meg said, it's good ingredients. Right. Paying attention to the preparation, knowing who the person is you're buying the foods from and and not overdoing it it's just very straightforward simple presentation right right this is random but i saw a picture online somewhere of rachel ray's kitchen and it was it was extremely small as well too and uh and i was surprised by that but we don't have an enormous kitchen either and i think it's it's uh, may maybe this is going to be maybe this is be a trend or something but the the idea of having these ginormous kitchens is it's not really necessary if it's about the ingredients that you're buying what you're putting in it i thought that was interesting so that's 
unusual, a boat-sized kitchen. It was, it was teeny. I mean, she might, I think she did get a new kitchen, which was a little larger, but the kitchen <laughs> that she really cooked out of and, you know, made her reputation from was this very small kitchen. That's terrific. Uh, my, my recommendation on food was a book that we've been flipping through lately, which is uh, Never Trust a Skinny Italian Chef, uh, which is by Massimo Bottura, uh, f um, with, uh, who has a restaurant, uh, three Michelin star restaurant in Modena. Um, he, th the, the book is beautiful. I mean, that's the thing about some of these cookbooks. I mean, you see the, the pictures that are in there are, ph are phenomenal. And there's, there's actually not, I don't find that there's too many recipes in there that I I could turn out because he does such unusual kind of artistic food, um, but it's just a gorgeous book to look through and, and very Italian and the photos are. And so I would recommend taking a look at that. Uh, you can, you can find that at the most of your bookstores. Um, so that, that's a, that, that would be what I would uh, recommend today. I think to kind of, um, before, before we wrap up, let's do, let's do a round of fiction. And if you have a fiction book that you would recommend, not, not everyone wants to delve into the history or the uh, reading about Garibaldi's quests through, <laughs> <laughs> through Italy, but uh, some of you do. But uh, if, if you just want to get lost in Italy, uh, give me a book that you'd read that's fiction that's wonderful. Deborah, go ahead. Well, I went back and reread, after we talked about doing this show, I went back and reread sort of, uh, maybe it's sort of the obvious book is A Room with a View, which I think a lot of people know from the <laughs> movie. Um, and when I went back to reread the book, it is laugh out loud funny. It's so well written. And it's really about the English in Italy. And it, it's just, that's what's funny. Um, but there's obviously a love that Forster had for that country, which I think it's that interesting how much the British love Italy, and then it's an odd sort of thing, the way they sort of, they sort of maybe look like it's a lesser heart <laughs> of, but they still go there. They I mean, they flock to there. I mean, they're not, you know, they haven't lived until they've made the grand tour and gone to Italy. Um, but I mean, the idea is you've got this young cloistered sort of English girl, and she goes to Italy, and she becomes the woman she becomes because she's in Italy and the experience she has there and there's this experience which she has on the hillside when they've ridden out to the countryside and um, uh, she's looking for the, 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 uh, the reverend. She's been kind of shunted off by the others and she's looking for the reverend and she asks, asks the carriage driver who's this young Italian man. She doesn't know the, her Italian very well and, she doesn't know Italian for clergyman, so she asked, Dove buono uomini, uomini, and which is, where is the good man? And of course, the Italian driver understands her not to be looking for the clergyman, but to be the young man who is <laughs> in love with her and who is sort of pining for her, and he directs her to him, and of course, the story goes on from there. But um, the fact that it took an Italian to understand what <laughs> she really wanted, <laughs> ultimately, without knowing it. I mean, it, it's just a wonderful story, and Forrester does a terrific job of describing the English in Italy, and then back in, in England again. A classic? Oh, I think, I, I, I think so. It's, and it's an easy, quick read. Yeah, terrific, because yeah. we haven't been planning this too terribly long, and to be able to read it quickly, that's terrific. Yeah. Meg, 
Um, I have two suggestions real quick. First one, The Imperfectionist by, I think it's Tom, is it Rachman? Rackman. Rackman, sure. Okay. Um, sorry if I mispronounced that. Phenomenal uh, book. It's a great book. And I, I just happened upon this book, if it's just the plot line real quick, it's about a news English-speaking newspaper in Rome. And it, it what it does is it takes it at different points of time in the life of this newspaper, telling it through um, the staff, the editors, and, and, and so forth. And these characters are incredible. I, I really en you enjoy them so much. Um, but what I think is, is really great about this book is the way that he's able to intertwine all these characters to where it makes sense. If I sat here and told you, well, these are the characters, and this is kind of the story, like one of them, the editor-in-chief, um, Kathleen, I believe is her name, uh, husband's having an affair, they're in Rome, and the husband's having an affair, and she's kind of rekindling this love with, with her, an old flame, and um, then you have another character who's been married four times, and he's getting ready to... Uh, give his source away, who happens to be his daughter. It's just all, I mean, so much is going on, but he is able to craft it in a way that it you, you're not, you don't have a headache by the end of it. It's a really great uh, book. Um, there's a picture of him on the back of it, and he looks actually really young. I don't know how old he is, but I'm, I'm impressed. Yeah, I heard he's, it's a wonderful book, and he's, he's got his second book out now, which is called The Rise and Fall of Great Powers. Mm -hmm. Also, for listeners, a tr just an yes. absolutely tremendous book. I think it's also interesting, too, because it, it talks about the hardships that newspapers face with the advent of technology and, and trying to survive through that um, and, and, and then maybe not surviving. So anyways, it's a great book. Um, my other one is a, a historical fiction novel, so don't judge me, but I love historical fiction. <laughs> so for people out there who also love historical fiction, it's by Sarah Dunnett, and I also might be saying her name wrong, and I hope I'm not. Um, but it's called The Birth of Venus, which is... Uh, Obviously, the title is based off the um, painting by Botticelli in the Uffizi Museum. That's pretty famous. Uh, and what it is, it takes place in the 15th century, and it's just about this woman coming of age story. It's a it's a quick read. It's a train read. If you're on a train in in Europe, and it's a great read. Um, it's also a beach read. I, I've heard it called. It's it's very easy to go through. But if you if you do, it's about the time of Savonarola. I'm probably seeing that wrong now, but he was a friar who took over in Florence for a little bit and unfortunately burned a lot of people, um, but and including wanting to burn artwork and books. And so it's about her not wanting her wanting to be a painter. She falls in love with this painter and wanting to pursue that career. And but she was a woman of um, uh, of position, and so she had to marry who her father told her to marry. So it's it's kind of you know if you're in the mood for something like that and it, with with uh, history intertwined in it. But what I loved about it too is it takes place in Florence and the one thing about Italy is it, how much it doesn't change. And so this is placed in the 15th century and she lives near uh, Santa Croce, which is where I, near where I lived. And the streets, the way that she described the streets, the same, they look the same today as they did back then. And these little alleys that she would talk about um, we're all the same. So if you if you go to Florence, it's it's really great to to give a sense of place, I guess. So those are my recommendations. Terrific recommendation. Uh, I'll close this out. Fiction recommendation: um, The Leopard uh, by Giuseppe Di Lampedusa. Um, this is not a beach read. <laughs> uh, I tried to do it. I actually tried to read it at the beach. <laughs> it failed miserably. Um, but it, this was published after the author's death, and um, it's about a 
head of a family in Sicily in the 1860s. So as the country, we talked about, <laughs> I, I said fiction is to get us away from Garibaldi, but obviously not. Um, but this is a book that, um, it's about the time that the country is coming back together, and it's about um, him in his late life and his family and how he approaches his family and about how his family has changed. And uh, it's, it's actually a beautiful book. Um, it is well known to be one of the best pieces of Italian fiction that's been written by an Italian author, um, it w widely um, shared, and, and it was very popular after, obviously after his death, um, it was turned into a movie, so it, it's great, good, very good. Uh, the, the one of the famous lines from it, Meg, you said something that reminded me of it, but the, one of the famous lines from it is, he says at one point, in order for things to stay as they are, things are going to have to change, uh, which is a, the Italians loved that, and uh, the book was, was not wildly successful, but has had quite a following, so. And it's a beautiful movie. The movie's terrific I've not to seen watch. the movie. I should, I'd love movie. to watch the movie sometime. I, th I think I've got this right. It's Burt Lancaster. It's it, that is and true, yeah. Claudia yeah. Cardinale. I don't know um, that. Plays, um, and it, it's, well, the, the settings, the house mm. and the costumes, it, it's just, it's a feast for the eyes. I'll check it out. We made it through an entire podcast about Italy, and we didn't get to Dan Brown and Angels and Demons, so <laughs> small victories. Um, <laughs> I want to thank everybody for joining us today on the 12th Story and give a special shout-out to Karen Smith, who we invited to join us for this discussion, but who is actually in Italy right now as we are recording this podcast. Karen has a wonderful place outside of Orvieto in a very small town called Bonanno. We would encourage you to visit her website at www.rocadibanano.com. Uh, we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast via your preferred app. We're available on the iTunes Store and on SoundCloud. And if you like listening, tell your friends or tweet to us at Mercantile Lib. Uh, today's podcast was directed and engineered by Chris Messick of the Mercantile Library. Special thanks to our guests, Deborah Janacchio and Meg Hall. I'm Brendan Call. The Twelfth Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDermott. Don't forget to visit us online at www.mercantillelibrary.com where you can learn about our library and our upcoming events. Have a great week. <laughs>